The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. God, we are grateful to be gathered here. We're thankful that whatever we experience this week in our joy, in our sorrow, in our challenges, in our opportunities, all of who we are is laid bare before you that you are the one who sees us, you are the one who hears us. And I pray in this time as we look into your word, help us to bring all of who we are before you, uh, to let go of those more challenging elements of the week, to be receptive to the work of your spirit in us and among us. Encourage us in your presence today, we pray. Amen. So we are working through a series called All Things New, and to start today, I'd like to take a step back for a moment and kind of recap where we've been so far. Uh, A lot of you know I am a middle school teacher, so I suffer uh, from the illness of repetition, but I also think that it's a good thing to pause and to reflect. So we often have information coming at us at an alarming rate of speed, And there's very seldom time to stop, to pause, to reflect, to think through what we've heard and think of how we might appropriate that. So this series, the purpose of the series is to reflect on the big picture of the Bible. Uh, And I think that we see the themes of creation, decreation, recreation, and new creation. I think that as we work through this, you'll see that that's a really effective way to make sense of the Bible. I think that it's also a really good opportunity for us to reflect on how we make sense of our lives. So I think that we sense goodness, right? We look on this beautiful fall New England morning. I hope that before the Sunday fun day, maybe you'll go apple picking or some other like textbook New England activity out on this beautiful day. High in the mid 70s, not sure about the humidity, but we sense beauty. We sense goodness, we sense joy in our relationship with other people. We sense meaning in our work. And it's not too long before we realize that those things aren't all that they should be. So the purpose in this series is to reflect on the goodness of God's design, to reflect on the ways that those things are broken, and to reflect on how Jesus points us to renewal. My hope for this series, and it's somewhat selfish and personal, is just to be reinvigorated in my sense of mission in the city. Um, That as we look at this big, grand thing that God is doing, um, through all that he's made, through all that he's redeeming, is just to get excited about the opportunities that we see in our immediate context. So it's not just... A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away as we talk about Genesis, God's character hasn't changed. His purposes have not changed. He is still the creator. Jesus is the one who renews all things. He recreates things, and he brings us on to the full and final vision of new creation. And these ideas that we're talking about are foundational issues. They go right to the core of who we are, how we perceive God, how we perceive the world, ourselves, others, how we engage the world. These last few weeks have been an exposition on the things that are most true about God, most true about the world, most true about us. 
They're the foundational things. We talked about the goodness of God's design in creation, the incredible diversity of the life that he's created. At a bare minimum, there's something when there could have been nothing that God is not obligated to create. He doesn't create out of compulsion or need or insecurity. He's not working out his issues and trying to impress somebody. And there's, like, that's a minimum, but there's just this incredible diversity to the life that God has given us. He's not competing with other gods. The world that he's made is intentional. He did it on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not something that he's fighting with another god. Like if you read some of the ancient narratives, it's like these gods are fighting with each other and like blood spills on the earth and that's how human beings get made. Like it's accidental and human beings are some sort of weird byproduct of cosmic conflict. That's not how the Bible portrays it at all. God did it on purpose. God did it intentionally. There's, there's harmony in what God has made. And it's good. And the sum total in Genesis is that it's actually very good. God looks at what he made, gives himself an A++. Like, this is awesome. That's where we start. Last week, we talked about image bearing. We talked about the place that human beings hold as what Tolkien called sub-creators. That human beings hold a unique place. Jacob used the phrase micro-divine beings, and he talked about um, image-bearing and all that that involves. That shouldn't make us arrogant, but it should, I hope, make us realize that we're no small part of what God has made. He talked about Psalm 8, how we're a little bit lower than God, a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, and all that that means. Hopefully, as we continue to reflect on these things, especially in the beginning, we want to raise the bar on our sense of awe and wonder that these are the things that the Bible talks about in the beginning. They are first principles. They are the things that come first. They are the things that define us. We'll talk about the fall. We'll exposit Genesis 3 next week. And obviously, you're not going to look too far in the world before you realize something's not quite right here, right? For me, that it came on Friday. It wasn't like the first time I had experienced the fall, but I made the mistake of clicking on the comment section on a particular WMUR article, and I realized the world is a fallen place. And I'm going to close this computer now and go stare at a tree or something try to purge my imagination from the vacuous, half-baked opinions that I just read, and it was my mistake, right? So we're not, we're not going to have to look too far before we realize that things aren't all that, that they should be. And more than just idea about God's, more than, more than just ideas about God, more than abstraction, I think that this framework actually helps us to make sense of our lives. And as I said, I'm hoping for myself that it reinvigorates my sense of mission uh, in the church, outside the church, at work, in my home. This whole framework of creation, decreation, recreation, and new creation applies to every area of our lives. Think about communication. Everybody in some form or another communicate. 
gifts. Words are this incredible gift of God. They're actually the thing that God used to create everything. Words. This incredible source of blessing, right? Creation. It's good. We can use our words to build other people up, to edify, to affirm, right? We can use our words in these incredibly generative ways that we can, at Alan Mary's wedding, we can call books out of non-existence and into existence by use of our words. And thankfully, there are people who that's their craft. But we also know the decreation side of that. We know that we can use our words either intentionally or unintentionally to destroy other people, to tear them down, to make our point, right? To be right, we can use our words both for good and for evil. Renewal in Jesus, this recreation idea, provides a pathway for us to again use our words in these generative, affirming, encouraging, edifying ways. So that's just one example. This whole framework could apply to that. Think about relationships. Human companionship is a good part of God's design. In fact, the only thing that wasn't good in Genesis 1 and 2 is it was not good for man to be alone. So relationships, human companionship, is a part of God's good design. And again, we don't have to look too far, either in the Bible or in our own experiences, to see how relationships can become corrupt. What is once a source of blessing and encouragement can be twisted by the fall. You have power dynamics. You have all kinds of corruption. And what this is, is it's all taking a good part of God's design and it twists it. We'll talk about that more when we talk about the fall. Renewal in Jesus points us forward to healed relationships. There's this whole new category of reconciliation, right? That we're going to rough each other up. I had one, one friend who said that that's why God invented forgiveness, which I thought was a really funny way to say it, like God invented forgiveness, but I think, I think that's right. The reason we need forgiveness is because of the fall. So renewal in Jesus points us forward. When we follow a Savior who is marked forever with the scars of self-sacrificing love, that paves a whole new way for us to experience relationships with each other to experience this regenerating power of relationships. That's why the New Testament includes Galatians 6, right? To bear with one another. That's why it includes Ephesians 5, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Among others, like that's the New Testament ethic forward in these new relationships. One other thing we could think about is work. Right? We can filter work through this entire framework of creation and decreation. Work is a good part of God's design. Work is not a function of the fall. I'm sorry. It's not like, well, now you messed it up. Now you got to work. Like human beings were meant to just sit around and binge watch Netflix all the time. I don't think that's what the original Hebrew bears out. But work was a good part of God's design, and we're going to see next week it gets corrupted. It's present in Eden, but all of a sudden it's twisted by the fall. So at a minimum, our work can become toil, right? It can just be frustrated and miserable and boring. At worst, it can be used as a way to abuse other image bearers. 
So you take something that's a part of God's good design, and the fall twists it. But the really encouraging thing is we don't live there, right? In Christ, even work is redeemed. So if you read 1 Corinthians 15, which is like all about the resurrection, Paul goes on for like 50 some odd verses about the resurrection. And you would think, if you listen to popular Christian radio, that then you just sit around and do nothing until Jesus comes back. That's not actually how Paul ends the chapter. If you make it all the way to verse 58, you see, you throw yourself into your labor. Because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. Your work has meaning. Fast forward to the end of Revelation. The kings of the earth bring their splendor into the city. Your work is all of a sudden redeemed and made more meaningful, even if it is a bit frustrated. Today, what I'd like to do after that introduction is talk about the presence of God in the Bible and to filter it through this same framework, through creation, decreation, recreation, and new creation. Now, God's presence is a prominent feature in the early chapters of Genesis, and it remains a prominent feature in the rest of the Bible. And there's more to be said than could be said in a single sermon, right? But that's true of all these topics, right? The presence of God could be its own series. The image of God could be its own series. Work, thinking about our work as Christians, could be an entire series. So today we're just going to sample and survey a bunch of different texts around the theme of God's presence. And in this material, there's a lot of diversity in how God communicates. Personally, I find that exciting, that there is all kinds of interesting ways that God chooses to communicate, and there's not just one thing. It's actually, to me, like a signpost of his creativity. Um, if you love, like, blunt propositional statements, if you like things to be clear and linear, you can read Romans, and Paul is very outline-y, and, like, it's very easy-ish to follow. Like, at least you can follow the structure. If the individual words might be like, huh, I have no idea what that means. But at least you, we can all agree it's linear, right? If you're into more poetic expressions, right, you've got the Psalms. You have other parts of the Bible as well. And these all can talk about God's presence. If you like fantastic, apocalyptic images, there's something there for you too, right? Now, we have a lot of like gifted, creative types here, a lot of visual artists, musicians, and I think intuitively you pick up on the quality of those images. They're just not like propositional statements. And dis-evangelicals for a second, like we're always explaining things to people rather than just like letting the image be the image, what it is. Like, and people get it, right? And I think in some ways, because they're not conditioned to read the Bible in the way that we are, they might actually pick up on some things with a little bit more clarity. They might see something like, yeah, right. As a visual artist, they can see kind of what God's doing in that, in that revelation. So anyway, there's different ways of communicating this. So what I'm going to advise for you today, because it's a topical sermon within a topical series, right? So the Gospel Coalition has already taken my expository preaching card. I'm, you know, the, the, the Gospel Coalition police might drop through the ceiling at any moment. He's, he's 
preaching a topical sermon in a topical series. Is this even allowed? Well, I'm going to do it. And if, if I disappear mysteriously this week, you'll know what happened. <laughs> but there's just too much diversity to the material just to exposit one passage. So my main point today is the presence of God is a prominent feature in Genesis, and we live in the tension between creation, decreation, and renewal. I want to talk about what the presence of God looks like in the garden. I want to talk about what changes about it when human beings fall, and not so much what changes about God's presence as much as human perception of God's presence. I want to talk about what does it look like for the renewal of the presence of God among his people. And I'd like to structure this around four things. There's openness, there's hiding, there's longing, and there's fulfillment. These ideas contrast with each other, but I think that we can structure around those four ideas. So first, we're going to look at Genesis 3.8. There's actually not a lot of explicit material on God's presence in the early chapters of Genesis, mostly because I think it's just assumed, right? You don't have to talk about it because it's assumed that it's going to be there. But I think there are some helpful indicators. It's a little bit subtle. So Genesis 3.8, I should say that the texts that I'm going to use are going to be on the screen. And this is where I'll confess before the group. I hope this is a safe place for me. Flipping through Bibles to like 58 different references in the context of a sermon, like I have a visceral reaction. I think it's like post-traumatic stress about turning pages. I don't even know why. But when I hear large numbers of people flipping pages, it just causes something inside me. Uh, I'm working that out. I should probably be medicated for it, but at some point. Uh, but anyway, the texts that I'm going to use are, are going to be on the screen. So it says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And goes on to say, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is where we're going to talk about openness and hiding. First, when we see this phrase, the cool of the day, it's actually literally the wind of the day. And it's the same word used for spirit in Genesis 1-2, where it says the spirit of the Lord is hovering above the waters. And I'm not going to make some weird, obscure point about like the connection of the spirit. It's just the same word, and I think it's the author's subtle way of talking about presence, right? If the author was an evangelical, he would have just come right out and said, like, it's talking about presence. But the author to Genesis, uh, of Genesis lets it, lets it be a little bit more subtle. So when it talks about the cool of the day, it's the presence of the Spirit, the same as Genesis 1 and 2, and it just lets the image be there, right? So there's some indicators of the fullness of God's presence here. And it also says that he, uh, the Lord God, as he was walking in the coolness of the day, so that word for walk, again, indicates presence. If you go to Leviticus 26.12, which comes later, there's the same idea. It says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So the idea that God walks among his people is another image for presence, right? So Genesis here in the early chapters is, is talking about God's presence in subtle ways. So Eden, I would say, is the first temple and the presence of God is there. And what's remarkable, especially as we consider all the detail of later temple construction, and what I'm talking about here is like the end of the book of Exodus, 
where there's those long descriptions of all of the aspects of the tabernacle. And then you get to the end of Ezekiel and there's this like, it feels like 50 chapters long of describing the dimensions of the temple. Like there's just a lot of very long uh, description. Here, there's none of that description, right? Eden is the first temple. There's the elaborate construction of the cosmos, but it doesn't read with the same excruciating detail. The point being that in the early chapters of Genesis, God's presence is just natural, right? It doesn't need to be elaborated on in full fashion like that. We can fill in the blanks uh, imaginatively if we choose, but it's just important to notice that there's not separation between human beings at this, and God at this point. Like, they recognize his footsteps. They know that it's him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right? So what we see here is part of the larger story of the harmony, the coherence. God is just there, right? He's just present among his people. But we know that that harmony and that openness didn't last for long. So that openness... Uh, all of a sudden turns to hiding. So the very same verse that we talked about is uh, going to be used again. And what I did was I switched the underline to a different phrase. I mean, just another free service I provide here. Um, so uh, what happens is we introduce this new category that they heard the sound of the Lord God and he's present. And you know the story, right? They've already fallen. They've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we introduce this new category of hiding. And this changes how God's presence is perceived. They're afraid of him now. There's no evidence before that that they are intimidated. It's just a natural part of God's good design that he's present there. But they know now that they've fallen that there's something fearful about God's presence. And this is where we move from creation to decreation. And it's not hard for us to imagine this, right? We operate in these categories of shame and of guilt, and it causes us to retreat from other people's presence, right? So this hiding is something that we all do. It's almost intuitive to who we are. Like, we know that these categories of shame cause us to withdraw, and this is where it comes from. Adam and Eve know that they've done something wrong. They've stepped beyond the boundaries that God had set for them. And they know that they need to hide from him. Seems a little laughable because he's the creator of everything, but I'm hiding behind a tree. You won't see me back here. You always picture like a little kid like stuffing their head behind the couch and their whole body's hanging out and like, well, you can't see me. Like, all right, well, teach you logic later. But anyway... Um, so as Adam and Eve were deceived, there's a clear sense that something has gone wrong here. And there are all different ways to hide. We all have different versions of this, right? Some of us as believers, we hide behind our good works and all the things that we're doing for the Lord. Like that's a form of hiding. God's presence is something to be afraid of, so we think if we curry enough favor that we'll be acceptable, that God will be present with us and we need not be afraid of him. We experience shame and hiding in all kinds of different forms. And these are all warped ways of us trying to get back to the garden. And even worse, we perceive that God is always disappointed with us. 
That's another form of hiding, right? That we can't live openly in God's presence. We can't bring all of who we are before him that we need to hide. And we don't need much exposition on this. There are different ways that we hide. We'll talk about this more next week, but in the midst of our hiding, we still feel this deep longing for God to be present. Even if it's subconscious, we ache for presence. There's still this longing for God's generous uh, presence among us. And as we live on the timeline between Eden and the new heavens and the new earth, we desire for God to be near to us, right? And that takes a lot of different forms as well, but I think it's all fundamentally the same thing. We want God to be near to us, to empower us, to make us whole. And we look for that because we're products of the fall, right? Because we're not living in Eden anymore, we're going to look for warped ways to bring about that presence. So we move from openness and hiding. What I want to stress, and I'll stress this more next week, hiding is not a function of God's good design, and it doesn't unmake the goodness of his presence. As Jacob talked about last week, image bearing is not destroyed by human fallenness. It's tainted, right? So there's still a good impulse. There's still a desire to get back there. Openness is not destroyed. It's just tainted. So we move on to longing and fulfillment. The rest of the New Testament, or the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, even as hiding has entered the scene, there remains this longing for God's presence. And the presence is still there, right? The perception of that presence is just off. Right? So there's a corporate desire, a corporate longing for God's presence, and there's an individual longing. And I'm just going to throw a couple examples up there, and I don't even think these passages need a whole lot of exposition. When we see Moses in Exodus 33, things go off the rails pretty fast after the Exodus. They see the waters divide. They cross through on dry land, and like, it seems like 13 seconds go by, and They forgot that God did that, and they threw all their stuff in the fire. Oh, look, the golden calf came out. This is awesome. Right. And God is basically going to tell Moses, like, all right, take this people and go get them. Moses, though, pleads with God, and he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The presence has not gone away. The longing for God's presence has not gone away. Moses knows enough that he's a no-go on this sojourning if God is not going to be present with them because there's nothing that distinguishes them from the nations if not God's presence. So Moses picks up on this impulse. He longs for God's presence to be in the midst of the people again, as it was in Eden. Another corporate verse, it says, blessed are those who who you choose and bring near to live in your courts. Those blessed are those who bring near, right? All of God's people, not just individuals. And that corporate longing might seem kind of far from us, but there's plenty in the Bible about the individual expression for longing. You're going to see most of this in the Psalms. The psalmist longs for God's presence. And this might be the one thing that you want to latch on to. We have a whole list here in the next slide. 
that font got a lot smaller. I can assure you it was bigger when I made the slide presentation, but it, it's really hard to see. The psalmist says, do not be far from me, for trouble is near. Psalm 22. Psalm 35, Lord, you have seen this. Do not be silent. Do not be far from me. The psalmist is pleading with God, be near to me. Be present with me. Do not be far from me, Lord, or my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. Do not forsake me. Do not be far from me. The individual cries out to God, be near to me. They ache for the presence. So as we live in this tension between Eden and the new heavens and the new earth, there is this longing for God to be present. So throughout the Old Testament, and that was very quick, that longing still exists, and we can each express it in our own way. We long for God to be near to us. And maybe we're not going to frame it that way. It might take the form of we long for other people to be near to us. I should say, frankly, that I think that that's part of God's good design. It's not good for man to be alone. And I can say just for myself, by way of personal testimony, a lot of these categories are abstract for me, like the forgiveness of God, the presence of God. I find these to be abstractions, and they're challenging for me to make sense of. What makes it real for me is when I see it in other people. So when I want my friends to be present with me. That's how I experience the closeness and the tenderness of God. Forgiveness is just an abstract category until I feel either forgiven by my friends or expressing forgiveness. Like that all of a sudden makes it concrete. I don't know if that's everybody's experience, but I think that's part of why God said it's not good for man to be alone. We don't do this on an island, and some of these categories are just abstract. Finally, we turn from longing to fulfillment, both in Jesus and in the new heavens and the new earth. So in Jesus, as in all other things, we have the renewal of the presence of God among his people. And this is stated nowhere more clearly than in John 1.14. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this word for made his dwelling is the same word for tabernacle. It's the same word that's used to describe God's presence among his people on the earth. So the New Testament writer here is intentionally evoking this image of God's presence in the Old Testament. He's literally saying the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And what's interesting to me is that the presence is more than a place. It's a person. That's what I find really compelling here. And that's what takes it out of the category of abstraction and puts human flesh on it so that you can see it. And quite frankly, this is how I conceive of God. I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't, I experienced uh, conversion, but also seeing that everything I need to know about God is true in Jesus. And Jesus is incarnate. He's a person. He's not an abstract idea. So I find that to be compelling here. We're not just describing the dimensions of a temple or a tabernacle. The fact that God would establish his presence in the form of himself incarnate, I just think is a brilliant move. I mean, not that God needs my endorsement or anything, but I'm like, 
that's a pretty slick plan. I would not have thought of that. That's really good. Right? God's like, whatever. Um, he wouldn't say that to you, naturally. I just sense that he would be more ambivalent about my audacity to say something so dumb. But then he already knows the depth of my heart and the number of dumb things I say in the course of a day is astounding. So it would just chalk that up on the list. All right, anyway, this is where things get really interesting to me, right, in terms of God's presence. Jesus is, as I said, the full expression of who God is. And seeing him interact without, uh, with others throughout his life gives us a clear window into what God's presence means for his people. And what does this look like? I re- this is one of the reasons I recommend the Gospels, For everybody, like not just to read unto salvation, though that obviously is is important, but just to see how Jesus interacts with other people and all of the diversity that he experiences there. The presence of God in Jesus is grace and kindness to people who are struggling. If we're talking application points here, that's how we should conceive of the presence of God in our own lives? Do we represent God in the same way? Not as a guilt-ridden, doing sort of thing, but when people interact with us, do they get the sense that they've touched grace and kindness if they're struggling? The gospel writers quote Isaiah 42 and say, a bruised reed he will not break. Right? That's a description of Jesus. But then you have some pretty interesting interactions with pretentious religious people. Jesus is not really very gracious to them. In fact, he can be sarcastic, and he can be what we might describe as pretty aggressive with the believers of his day, right? The religious people, the grace and kindness, like, I mean, even saying that you, (laughs) to the Sadducees, I just thought it was kind of funny the first time I read it, like, I can't believe you just said that. He says to the Sadducees, like, you're wrong here because you don't know Scripture and you don't know God's power, right? Now, we would consider that to be just audacity, right? Who would go to Jacob, right, the, the pinnacle of pastoral wisdom and biblical knowledge, and say, the reason Jacob... Like, you, you would consider it to be pretty bold, right? But this is what Jesus is doing. So we want to look at the full diversity of... Jesus' interactions with people, and let that be into a window of what redemptive presence looks like. And I feel like there's so much that's instructive for us as we seek to live missionally in our city, right? As faithful representatives of Jesus here, and we'll talk about this at the end um, when we talk about maybe some application points. I want to fast forward right from the Gospels. We're going to jump right to the very end of the Bible. I have two more texts. One is crystal clear, and the other one, I'm going to sneak a math lesson in on you. And if you, well, I guess I'm not going to sneak it now because I just said it. (sighs) So awkward. So I said I'm, I didn't mean to, like, made it it worse. The point being, um, we're looking not just at fulfillment in Jesus. We're looking at the full flowering of God's presence reestablished among his people. Right now, even though we are experiencing fulfillment in Jesus, we know we live in between redemption and the new heavens and the new earth. 
We know that things are not all that they should be. We know that God is not fully present in the way that he will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But we look forward with hope, and I pray excitement about what God is doing. When you start with the vision of the end of the Bible, and you see where we're going, if that doesn't generate some excitement, I don't know what does. And these are the passages that I need. <laughs> like, I, I needed Jacob's sermon on image bearing this week because I interact with a lot of humans. And I needed, I think I made it till about Tuesday morning where it was like, God, they're all image bearers? Yeah, like, I, I couldn't make it very far. But that's the point. We need this encouragement, this excitement to see this is where we're headed. Things that invigorate us toward mission. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's not much to comment. This is the final vision of what God is doing. This is the finish line. And the joyful thing about life in Christ is that we get to live that out by fits and starts right now. We don't have to sit around and wait for this to happen. We are moving toward this. This is the trajectory that we're on. One final text, and then we'll talk a little application. The city was laid out like a square. Now, this city is the New Jerusalem. And at the end of Revelation, it says the New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. Interesting. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found that it was 12,000 stadia in length. That's like 1,400, 1,500 miles. That's big. Like, that's a big wall, 1,500 miles. And as wide and high as it is long. Now, here's your math. What is that shape? It's a cube, right? Now, because I teach math, and I know that like the edifice of my coolness is just dissolving around me right now. Like they thought Peter was so cool. And my kids are like, no, he's the biggest dork there is. I read this and I thought, huh, that's really interesting. And the next question I ask is, I wonder how many cubes there are in the Bible. Anybody know? One other time. Anyone know what it is? the Holy of Holies. The only other cube in the entire Bible is the Holy of Holies. This is John's fantastic, brilliant way of describing what other Bible writers have described, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. If you, this is one last nerd thing, at least for now, if you lay that 1,500 miles out, like on a map of the ancient world, you're going to see it covers about the whole known world at the time. This is a way of just brilliantly describing 
that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And if that's a little bit too obscure and weird, Revelation says it much more clearly. God himself will be with them and will be his people. That's the full flowering of what God has done. So finally, just a couple quick application points. What do we do with all of this? I hope that there's been at least one text that you can resonate with, whether it's the early chapters of Genesis, whether it's the ways that we hide, whether it's the corporate or the individual longing, whether it's the fulfillment, one thing that you resonated with, and I hope that it excites us about mission. First, it's no accident that the church is referred to as the body of Christ. How is Jesus present now? He's present by means of his spirit, but he's also present by means of his body, which is the church. So in addition to Jesus being present by the spirit, he's present to the world in the church in as much as they reflect his mission and his character. And his character is self-sacrificing love. And I would submit to you that nobody really has a problem with that, right? The narrative that I hear in the different environments that I move is not that, boy, the way that that church is just so self-sacrificing, the way that those Christians are just falling over each other to serve other people, that's not the narrative that I hear. And I'm not saying that that's the whole, you know, I'm not, that's just anecdotal. But the point being, when the church is offering itself up in self-sacrificing ways, that is the most compelling thing in the universe. When Jesus offers himself, when he takes all of the power and all of authority he has and he submits it in self-sacrificing ways and he is exalted when he is raised up on the cross, that's what power looks like. That's what the church should look like. Self-sacrifice. Second, in terms of modeling faithful presence, being a refuge. The presence of God is a refuge, is a safe place for people. Missionally, are we a safe place for people? And finally, living with some vulnerability. We live in between recreation and the new creation. Communities that are marked by God's presence are safe to confess to each other. They're safe to live their lives openly before each other all in God's presence and in the safety of one another's presence as well. That's the effect that the presence of God has. So if you remember nothing else, faithful presence. God's presence to us is faithful. Our presence to each other should be faithful. Our presence and our witness in our neighborhood should be faithful as well. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.